If you have a Bible or a device, turn to Matthew 20. We'll be reading that just a bit. In Matthew 20, Jesus tells a parable that by anyone's standard is truly amazing. Amazing partly because it's so wonderful. Amazing partly because it is so ridiculous. And amazing because to some, it's just downright offensive. In fact, I almost entitled this God's offensive grace or God's ridiculous grace. And some will not like this parable. Some will not like the implications. I'm not sure I like it. It kind of bugs me. God's amazing grace is also disturbing. We sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Well, not always. So listen to this and see how you react to it if you think it's a little bit odd. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. For the kingdom of God is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At 9 o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon and again at 3 o'clock, he did the same thing. At 5 o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw some people standing around and asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at 5 o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more, but they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I'm kind to others? So those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. So some workers work 12 hours, some work nine, some six, some three, and then this last group works one hour. Comes time for pay, they all get the same amount. And who of us would not have sympathy for a person who worked 12 hours and received only as much as the one who worked for one hour? See, the one thing we did learn about God in in this God series is He is fair, He is just, and He is righteous. But in this parable, He's not fair. I mean, it looks a little like communism, you know, socialism. Everyone gets a trophy, everyone gets paid, you know. And in this parable, God is represented by the owner, the, the, the employer, And it is an illustration of God's amazing, disturbing grace. There's been a variety of interpretations. John Chrysostom said this parable teaches that even in old age, it is not too late to draw near to God. And that's true, so there's some hope for some of you. Uh, But that's not what this parable is saying. Some have interpreted uh, that this first group who worked all day were the Israelites who served God for centuries, and the last group are the Gentiles, the Johnny-come-latelys. And you can see that possibility here. Whatever they represent, here's what we can be pretty sure of. The first group is the cream of the crop. They're hired first. You always want the best workers that you can get. And when the owner would go to the marketplace, they're going to hire and choose the best, the hardworking ones, the honest ones. They know they'll, they'll get the job done. So this is the group, best group. Now, what kind of people do you think were in the last group, the very last group? All day they sit in the marketplace and no one hires them. Why not? What kind of workers you think they were? Let me use a theological term here. They would be the riffraff. Lazy, 
bums, can't trust them, junkies, drunkards, and you know, just all sorts of issues. But Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like that. The last group shall be first, and the worst will be given the reward. Do you want to be part of that kind of a kingdom? Do you want a kingdom that's not fair? Would not you resent those who only worked one hour and received the same pay as those who were 12, and they were the better workers, and they deserve better? Now, two weeks ago, we talked about God as judge and how some people can be a little uncomfortable with that concept. Well, today, I think we'll see that we can be uncomfortable with God's grace as well. And the first thing is that good people do not like God's grace. Bad people do. The riffraff say, cool, all right, we'll take it, while they're smoking their joint. A whole day's wage, just for working one hour, you know, we'd been protesting for a $15 minimum wage, and man, we get even more. So the bad workers are thrilled, the good, good workers are mad. See, grace is a great concept when I'm on the receiving end. We love it. But when grace contradicts our sense of fairness, especially against us, we get uncomfortable. When I have to forgive someone and I have to show grace to them, it's not fair. Yep, that's how grace works. It's not fair. And I don't like it, and it's hard. But when I receive forgiveness from someone, it's so refreshing, it's great. I know I did deserve it. So the riffraff love grace. Those who work hard and pay their own way, they don't. How can God give more grace to one person than another? God can't forgive him more than he forgives me, can he? And actually, yes, he can. He is God. And there's many examples of unfair grace in the Bible. The prodigal son squandered his inheritance, and by grace, the father accepted him back and reestated him fully as a son. And it's not fair that he would come back and pick up where he left off. And the elder son, he'd been left behind working all these years faithfully, and now both sons are back on an equal plane. It's just not fair. And what did the older son do? He got mad. The thief on the cross certainly didn't deserve grace. So God's generous, generosity goes to those who are not good people and not deserving. That's what grace is. And because of that, it is one of the more annoying doctrines in the Bible. Another reason, God's grace is eccentric. Eccentric means out of center, not centered. In other words, out of kilter, peculiar, weird, or different. Uh, you talk about an eccentric ant, you know, it's, you know, just eccentric. Well, in the second century, there was a, an opponent of Christianity named Celsus. And he was criticizing Christianity, and he said the idea of loving sinners, loving bad people, was a thing unheard of in any religion. And he's right. Grace is the one doctrine that makes Christianity unique. No other religion has God bending over to reward bad people. Just doesn't make sense. See, Christianity is not about making you and me good people. Okay, now it should and it will, it'll make a difference, but the core of Christianity is restoring bad people into a good relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's grace. Now, there's been other stories of the prodigal son. Jesus wasn't the only one to tell such a story. There is another religion that has a story with the prodigal son and roughly the same characters and the same plot, and it unfolds all the same way, and the stories diverge at the point when the prodigal returns to the father. And in this other religion, the prodigal son's story goes that the father makes the prodigal live in poverty for 20 years so he can learn the error of his ways. And that's really fair. That's justice. There are consequences for your actions. We teach that to our children. In essence, the father says, son, you will pay for your misbehavior. 
And that's fair. That's not what Jesus told. See, most religions offer good advice, good views, and good ways to live. You know, be good, straighten up, clean up your act, do better, love others, you know, quit spitting and chewing, you know, whatever. And Christianity things like that, how to live. But here is the difference. The gospel of Christ offers good news to the undeserving. Some offer good views. Christ offers good news. For the bad people, the riffraff, they will be rewarded. One of the most off-quoted sayings in the Bible by Americans is God helps those who help themselves. And there's two problems with that. Number one, it's not in the Bible. And number two, it is just not Christian. Now, that would fit many religions in the world. It fits American thinking, but it is the opposite of the doctrine of grace. Jesus said, God helps those who cannot help themselves. So this eccentric employer says, hey, I can give my money to whomever I want. If I want to be generous to the riffraff, I'm going to do it. It's eccentric. It's crazy. It's disturbing. It's grace. Here's another amazing thing. God's grace is undeserved. In our country, life is predicated pretty much on performance. As kids, we're taught that if you want something, you have to earn it. As adults, if you want a promotion, you have to put in long hours and work hard. I, I remember hearing once about Ford Company, Mortar Company, I don't know if they do anymore, but they had different levels of employees and different rewards. Like level 9, you get an outside parking space. Level 13, you get window plants provided. Level 16, you get your own bathroom. Why? Because you earned it. You know, you, you worked hard. And we live in a deserving culture. And that's not all bad. You know, if a worker doesn't put in his time, he doesn't deserve to get paid. But in the Bible it says, if, even in the Bible it says, if you don't work, you don't eat. But grace, by a definition, goes against that. It's undeserved. The riffraff don't deserve whole day's wage. There's just no way around it. You remember Dennis the Menace? Yeah, Dennis the Menace and had this neighbor, Mr. Wilson and Mrs. Wilson. He once said to his friend Joey, Mrs. Wilson gives us cookies because she's nice, not because we're nice. And God gives us blessings and eternal life because he's nice, not because we're nice. We worship this eccentric God who gives undeserved blessing. God's grace is risky. When I watch television and a bankruptcy commercial comes on, I always have mixed feelings. See, on one hand, I'm glad we have grace in our culture. I'm glad people can be forgiven of their debts. I've known some really good people who needed grace, and I'm glad they got it. And yet, I know some people will take advantage of it. Our system ends up rewarding irresponsible, even unscrupulous people. But that's how grace is. There's always some risk, and some will take advantage of it. In Romans 5.20, Paul said, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. In other words, the more you sin, the more God's going to forgive you. And then in the next chapter, the very next verse, Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? He knows the danger. The more I sin, the more grace I get. So, hey, let's just keep on sinning. And Paul says, certainly not. And he spends a whole chapter trying to battle that issue. But there's always a danger that grace will be misunderstood, misinterpreted, and abused to mean I can do whatever I want. And Paul says, you've been freed from that old crummy life. Why would you want to still live in that? So many will abuse God's grace. Two weeks ago, we talked about the judgment of God and how discomforting that is. Some just don't like the idea of a judging God. Uh, well, grace is discomforting too because it's just too risky. God's grace is for the dependent, and that bothers us. I want you to imagine an elderly American man, maybe your dad or granddad, living by himself. 
And he does not have enough money to support himself. So he depends on his children for support. His kids pay his bills because he cannot. Now imagine that your dad or granddad or maybe yourself is in that situation. Let me, is that man happy that his kids have to support him? Would you like that? Do you want to be dependent on your children or on anyone else for, for that matter? Most people in America, not so. Most American men, and probably a lot of women, would be embarrassed and ashamed. Most Americans would not want anyone to know that their kids are having to support them. We value self-reliance and independence. It's a basic cultural value. Pay your own way. Now, there's some cultures, I believe China's one of them, where it, they do not idealize self-reliance, and so an elderly man who's supported by his kids is proud. He's proud that his children uh, will support him, and he brags on them uh, and how good they are to him. Uh, and he'll tell everybody, hey, my kids are supporting me. Proud to be dependent. God's grace is not for the self-sufficient, and we Americans have a hard time thinking anything good can come out of a dependent relationships, but, relationship. But that's what grace is. It means I need help, and I am weak. And most men choke on those words. I don't need you. I can do it. I don't need you. I don't need to go for counseling. I, whatever. Then grace is not for you. Grace offends because it basically says we are powerless and needy and need help. And the whole Christian faith is built on this doctrine while we were still weak and dependent and powerless, bad people, Christ died for us. Now, today... All around us, we're told how amazing we are. We tell our kids how amazing they are, and we encourage people and say, you're worth it, you're a good person, and I do it. You know, once in a while, I try to encourage people. And it's, it is kind of true. People are amazing. I'm amazed how much good a lot of people do. There really are some good people. But on the other side, we really are dependent, uh, totally. And in some ways, we're totally weak. And the most ridiculous idea is the idea that I can do it on my own. It is the sin of pride. And if I were to ask you, are you a good person? I think most of you say, oh, I think I'm a pretty good person, and, and I think I would probably agree. I am amazed at how good some people can be. I'm also amazed how bad some people can be. And I'm amazed how they can both be the same person, good and bad. So I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm saying this. Most of you are pretty good people. But let me ask, how many here text while driving? Do some of you text while? Okay, two or three of you do. I'm talking to you. Most of us would consider that a minor offense. Now, do you know what that means when you text while driving? That means you have little regard for human life, others and yours. It also means you are arrogant because you think you can do it better than others and you will not get an accident. You know it is wrong. You know it is illegal, so you knowingly do wrong because if you saw a cop, you would stop texting. Texting will cause a crash 23 times more likely. It makes it a possibility of a crash 23 times more likely. It is more dangerous than alcohol. You remember those 12 seniors who were killed in that church bus a couple of weeks ago? Texting. So, if you text, you're a lawbreaker and you know you are. You're knowingly a potential murderer. You're arrogant. 
You have no regard for others or even yourself. And we would consider that a minor offense. Now in heaven, it says there will be no murders and there will be no arrogance and there will be no law-breaking. So that means there will be no you. See, we are so good at convincing ourselves, I'm pretty good. And again, I agree. Yeah, you're pretty good. Anyway, deserve God's blessing. And we think we are part of the first group of workers. You know, we deserve our pay. The Bible basically says we're all in the last group. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And grace is for them. Grace is for the riffraff. And if you think you're in the first group and deserve, and think you're pretty good, you'll probably never come to Jesus. See, because of the offensive nature of grace, the danger is becoming people of ungrace. And that's what happens in this parable. The first group, the owner's best workers, end up on the wrong side of the owner. They don't like grace being given out to these potheads. Verse 13, the owner addresses the guy in the first group, says, friend. Now, <laughs> that word is an unfriendly word for friend. It's found four times in the New Testament. Every time it's negative. One is used for Judas Iscariot. And another is a parable about a man at a wedding banquet who's being rebuked. So it's an unfriendly word for friend. A better translation might be, listen, buster, or look, pal. Uh, if I want to give some pothead with earrings in his navel and drags down his back and tattoos all over his body and doesn't even know his sexual orientation, and if I want to give him the same pay as you, so what? Are you going to make me the stinker because you got your noise out of joint? I'm just having some fun, buddy. I'm being generous with people that don't deserve it. I'm giving. I like giving. I'm a giving God. And if you want to mope, I guess that's your business, friend. See, because grace offends us, we tend to become people of ungrace. Well, God can't save them. Why not? He's God. These first workers are God's best, the cream of the crop. And they become people of ungrace. And set themselves against God. Well, I earn my pay. Why can't they? You know, I'm working in the nursery. I teach. And I'm doing all these things for God. And I'm praying. And I serve others. And working my head off. And, and, and those, those others are just sitting around doing nothing. And we get bitter and angry and ungracious, jealous. So the man asks the question, are you jealous because I'm kind to others? The owner is not unfair to anyone. Everyone gets their pay. The only wrongdoing is the first group selfishness, the good people. Ungrace says, well, I've been in church all my life. I should get some special consideration. That's ungrace. I'm one of the best givers to the church. They better listen to me. That's ungrace. I'm a member. How dare you charge us to use the Family Life Center? I'm the preacher. You better treat me right. And we who once knew grace become people of ungrace. And we think we deserve certain perks because we've been... Well, we're good. We've been faithful. And we're part of that first group. And I think Jesus tells us these atrocious stories to get inside our head and outside of this tit-for-tat world of ungrace and enter into God's realm of infinite grace. Just be people of grace. Just keep reminding people of grace, people of grace. It is eccentric. It is undeserving. It is risky. It is offensive. Hardly anybody does it. But that's the God we worship. Most importantly, God's grace is powerful. I mean, how else do you explain the impact of Jesus Christ in the course of history? How else do you explain the lives that have been changed, like Zacchaeus and Mary Magdalene and the woman at the well and the disciples? And how do you explain some people in this building uh, and how they're different? And I know 
I'm, I'm learning that I cannot force people to change by beating people over the head with sermons. It just doesn't work. No amount of coercing or cajoling can do it. It only happens when God's grace enters the heart. When you truly love Jesus and you're truly full of joy, it's not because of law or duty or you're trying to earn God's favor. It's because grace has flooded your heart. Who are the truly grateful, joyful people in this parable? Those who know they didn't deserve it. And the only way for us to become gracious, joyful people is if we understand we're part of that last group. No rule can change a heart. No rule, no sermon can bring transformation. It is when that heart and soul have been changed by the grace of God. Now, we're going to do communion today, and so the guys may go and start preparing. And I want us to talk to Jesus during this communion time. I want you to talk to him on your own and thank him for this amazing eccentric grace. And I want to end with this story. In the book Letters to My Children, the author Daniel Taylor describes an experience he had back in the sixth grade. Periodically, the students were taught to dance. And it ended up being a humiliating experience for some. This is back in the good old days when the boys would ask the girls. And so they lined up all the boys to choose their partner. And imagine what it was like to be one of those girls, waiting to be chosen, wondering, first of all, when they're going to be chosen, and, of course, wondering if or who would be chosen if they'd be chosen by someone they like. So Daniel tells about one girl named Mary who was always chosen last. Because of a childhood illness, one of her arms was drawn up, and she had a bad leg. She wasn't pretty, she wasn't smart, and she was, well, fat. And the assistant teacher of Dan's class happened to attend his church. And one day, this assistant teacher pulled him aside, pulled Dan aside, the sixth grade kid, and said, Dan, next time we have dancing, I want you to choose Mary. Dan could not believe it. Why would anyone pick Mary when there was Linda or Susan or even Doreen? Dan's teacher told him it is what Jesus would have done. And deep inside, Dan knew, yeah. So all Dan could do was hope that he would be the last to choose. And that way he could choose Mary and no one else would be the wiser. But instead, of course, Dan was first in line. And in his book, he writes this, The faces of the girls were turned toward me, some smiling. I looked at Mary and saw that she was only half turned. She knew no one would pick her first. Mrs. Jenkins said, Okay, Dan, choose your partner. I remember feeling very far away and I heard my voice say, I choose Mary. And Daniel writes, Never has reluctant virtue been so rewarded. I still see her face undimmed in my memory. She lifted her head and on her face, reddened with pleasure and surprise and embarrassment all at once, was the most genuine look of delight and even pride that I've ever seen before or since. It was so pure that I had to look away because I knew I did not deserve it. Mary came and took my arm as we'd been instructed, and she walked beside me, bad leg and all, just like a princess. I never saw Mary after that year. I don't know what her life's been like or what she's been doing, but I'd like to think she had a fond memory of at least one day in sixth grade. I know I do. We are not the good people in this group. In reality, all of us are the riffraff. All of us are in the last group. All of us are the spiritually crippled, ugly Mary. And God says, I choose you. That's grace. 
Amazing, ridiculous, eccentric grace.